Softly Spoken is an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. In our different ways, we all reach points in our life where we have to let go of who we were in order to embrace who we are and who we're becoming. A mix of stories and interviews, Softly Spoken is a podcast that takes a deep dive into the hidden moments that shape us. It's an invitation for you to consider the version of you you are creating right now. What are you learning about yourself in the process? My name is Stefan, and I'm your host and introvert-in-chief. I'm thrilled to have today as my guest, Athena Cooper. She happens to be my wife, and... It's important to know for context for this interview that she has a disability called osteogenesis imperfecta, also known as brittle bone disease, which means that her bones can fracture very easily, among other things. Wondering if you can introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. I'm Athena Cooper. I am a therapeutic arts practitioner and practicing visual artist. So I'm an acrylic and digital painter. I live in Calgary with my husband, Stefan. And yeah. Well, so here's the first question I want to ask. What identity do you hold that is most important to you right now? Hmm. Well, I feel like I'm currently shifting identities because of the way that my career has shifted in the past few months. So I went from having an identity that was very much centered around my nine to five job that was very corporate. I was working in digital marketing as an email marketing strategist. And now I am reinventing myself in the light of becoming a therapeutic arts practitioner in the light of becoming an artist. And really, art has been a very prominent part of my identity for many, many years, but it's always been on the back burner and always been something that I wanted to do, but not been fully fleshed out. So I kind of feel like I'm in this phase where one identity is being phased out or has been phased out. And then this new identity of being an artist is what's coming to the forefront. And being a therapeutic arts practitioner, I consider as part of that artistic practice as well. What did you aspire to doing when you were growing up? When I graduated from high school, I wanted to be an animator, but I didn't really know how that was going to happen. What was it about animation that inspired you? I saw The Little Mermaid back in 1989, and I completely fell madly in love with the medium. I should add that I knew that I had to get a university degree of some variety before I could go and become an animator. So that was goal one, was to just get that university degree behind me because 
in my family, you had to have a university degree. So I got a communications degree and then afterwards animation. So wait, it was the literal mermaid that inspired you to want to be an animator? Yes. What was it about that story in particular that resonated with you? Well, I mean, I think the whole things about being part of your world. And I think that unconsciously dug into me, the idea of someone being in one world and yearning to be part of another one. So I think being in the disabled world and yearning to be part of the able-bodied one is probably what I was unconsciously locking into. And then for me, the artistry of that song and Glenn Keane's animation of it is just magical. It's gorgeous, emotive. thing I love about animation is the emotional quality of it. These are line drawings that emote, which is kind of amazing. And you have like a still frame is just a frame. And then you run them all together and it's alive. It's magic. And I still love that about animation, particularly 2D animation. How old were you when you saw The Little Mermaid? I would have been about 12. And up till that point, had you done any sort of artistic work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I did a little bit of animation, kind of goofy stuff on the Amiga. Sorry, you're going to have to clarify what an Amiga is for our listeners. (laughs) Okay. Um, So my family, because my, both of my parents were self-employed, I was surrounded by computers from a very young age. And an Amiga is a type of computer. It was made by Commodore way back in the day. I believe dad's going to shoot me because I don't remember. Anyway, an Amiga is a, more graphically oriented computer than what was around back in the day, which would have been the 80s. And you could do animation on the Amiga pixel style animation. So stick scene colors, very, very basic. And I remember in high school doing some video transitions for our video annual. And so we would have the month of the year for the video yearbook. And I would do this animated thing of the text coming in. And so I remember like it was a rabbit and like the bunny hopped in and it smashed the word April and it hopped out of the screen again. And I can't remember what the other ones were, but things like that. And so I did those back in 1995, I think. And that was, yeah, that was early animation. You already had the, the interest, you already had the skill even, but The Little Mermaid sparked something about wanting to take that further. Yeah, and also just the thing with the 90s is that you had Toy Story, you had Pixar coming in, and there was this renaissance that really happened with animation. So Little Mermaid... Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, all of those, we went from Disney being a nothing kind of thing to really animation renaissance. And then at the same time, you also had 
all the computer animation coming up for the first time. And so if you look at animated films from back in the day, before The Little Mermaid, there was really nothing. Disney was releasing one film every three years, if that. And then suddenly after that, particularly by the time you get to The Lion King, you've got multiple studios coming up and everybody's doing animation and everybody, like it just, it was everywhere. What steps did you take to make that dream become a reality? Well, the thing with animation back then, when I finished high school, was that there was really no path, direct path into animation that was very straightforward. So when I went to SFU, Simon Fraser University, to get my degree, initially I thought, okay, well, I want to go to the best animation school in the country, which at the time was Sheridan College. And so I needed a visual arts bachelor's in order to even get into Sheridan. And I tried that. I was not successful. I basically, I slid and got into the visual arts program at SFU. And then they had us doing a lot of studio art, which was just not my thing. It was smearing mud on sheets of paper. And I just could not see how this was going to improve me as an animator. Or it was waxing poetic about some kind of piece of art that somebody else had made or that I had made. But your animation dream didn't die at that point. What did you do next? So what happened after I decided that I could not be a visual arts major was that I found out about these two computer animation courses that were like 300, 400 level classes in the computer science department. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll become a computer science major. And so I completely switched degrees and tried to get into the comp sci program. And that would have been a plan, except for the fact that I failed calculus twice and then failed math for computer science twice and decimated my GPA in the pursuit of trying to get to the comp sci program. So that didn't really work out. I had been taking a communications minor in theory all through this, and my communications minor became my major. What I ended up doing was after I finished my bachelor's, I went and I tried to get into one of these animation schools. And so I found one that I could afford, sort of. I had no money. I was living on disability benefits. And so I managed to scrape together enough money to take two classes at the Center for Digital Imaging and Sound. You basically get a major in communications. You, you finish that. You go into animation school. Did you ever doubt that you could achieve that aspiration? I did. I doubted it a lot from the just financial standpoint. But not about your own abilities or capacity to, to do it. I don't think so. Because I had done some animation on my own, I did feel like I had some ability. I took two classes with the money that I scraped together. One of them was a hand-drawn animation class, and the other one was a life-drawing class. 
And I thought, okay, I'll take these two classes. I'll see how it goes. And the 2D class, I was there until 10, 11 o'clock at night, basically until they kicked me out. I know that I impressed the instructor with both my sheer perseverance and my ability. So I knew that I had the ability to do it. Now, here you are, probably the only student with a disability in a classroom of people pursuing animation. How do you think your disability influenced your approach to animation, if at all? Oh, it definitely did. When I first started, all the exercises were pretty simplistic, like bouncing a ball or showing weight through like a sack of potatoes or something like that. But where I started running into it was the fact that I couldn't act out my own actions. How do you do a walk cycle if you don't walk, right? I had to break animation down to almost an anatomical level. Like I had to understand the mechanics because I couldn't get up and film myself walking or film myself acting out a scene. Did you ever think of animating someone in a chair? (laughs) I didn't because that wouldn't have been, I mean, I could have them roll down the street, but that wouldn't have been terribly exciting to my instructors, I'm sure. Yeah, I would often have to have other people act things out for me. And that was of a concern to me because, I mean, I'm now relying on somebody else to give me the performance or give me the reference for the performance. Okay, so you finish animation school, you're ready, you're going to go work for Pixar or I don't know where you wanted to work. (laughs) What happened? Well, I was in the second to last semester of my animation program. It was December 2003, and I unfortunately got hit by a car at a crosswalk on my way home from animation school. The car bumped me out of the crosswalk. Thankfully, the wheelchair stayed upright, so I didn't fall over. But I did, because of my disability, get my hip fractured in two places. And so I was stuck in bed for about a month and a half and the timing was such that I was in the middle of completing my demo reel so for an animator this is your portfolio this is the thing that gets you the job at the studio and I was in the dead center of the work and I I vividly remember they're loading me into the ambulance and The fireman has my wheelchair, which has now got torn tires down the side and is not in great shape. And I'm like, don't lose the hard drive because the hard drive, I had just finished the model for my my lead character. I just finished rigging him. And all I could think about is, do not lose Sir Stumpy. Do not let him go. Like, And that was, you know, on my way to the hospital as I'm trying to deal with the pain in a fractured hip. At that point, you still thought that, you know, you would recover and finish your demo reel and and go on. Oh, yeah. When did it occur to you that, no, this was actually going to change the direction of your life? I mean, I had a moment when I was, after you're taken to the hospital, when they x-ray 
they can't give you any kind of painkillers when they're doing the x-ray. And so they're trying to figure out what had happened, what was broken. I was fairly certain that something was up. And so they're manipulating my leg and it's extremely painful. And in that moment when they were checking the film to see if they could see anything, I was lying on the x-ray table and I could see it these two train tracks and one was the track that I was on the one that was leading me to my future in animation and I just had that sense in that moment that I had been pushed off track and that I would not see that track again and then afterwards I was trying to convince myself that I was wrong that I would get back on track and I would put things back I even would tell myself it's like oh yeah you've during this recovery period you can spend extra time on your demo reel you can do all this extra work and all this kind of stuff and I didn't do any work during my three months of recovery before going back to school was that because you couldn't concentrate or or what was what was getting in the way well I mean half of that time I couldn't sit up So that was a pretty big deal. I also wasn't making any money, which I was concerned about. And so I took on this website contract to try to give myself a little income during that time while I was trying to recover. And then, yeah, I was not feeling it. It was always just something that's like, oh, yeah, I'll get to it tomorrow. And and it wasn't until I got back to school when... I knew that I had to step it up. I had to do the work. And I it was like that fire that had sustained me all through the trials up to that point. Something was wrong. And I couldn't I couldn't latch back onto it again. How do you think that changed your view of what you thought was possible for yourself? I know that for myself, and I mean this is looking at it in hindsight is that I had PTSD. I was going through a serious state of depression as a result of the accident. And so I was kind of split between the part of myself that was just like, you've got to do this. This was your dream. This was the thing that you really, really, really wanted to do. And that part of myself that is just like exhausted and healing and traumatized and all those kinds of things. And so it was that conflict that really, really wore on me, particularly after the accident. How did you resolve that conflict? Well, it took a while. I mean, I did graduate. I did finish my demo reel, but it wasn't to the level that I knew it needed to be in order to get me a job. And so I convinced myself that I needed to stay on for another semester. And so I took an additional class with another instructor. And that instructor was known for getting results. And he was a bit of a hard ass, to be honest. And he didn't like anything that I had done in my demo reel. And so he basically made me start from scratch. And so it wasn't about trying to fix the thing that I had put my heart and soul into. It was about doing it his way and that broke me even further so by the time I finished 
that class, I was really dumb. I had another demo reel, which I didn't like and I didn't feel was me. And so I, I sent it around a little bit. But at that point, my desire to become an animator was just very, very conflicted. I couldn't open up the animation software without it causing me a lot of anxiety and a lot of pain. And by the time I finished, I ended up getting a job doing web design for a a little consulting company. And I did that work. And they had promised me that, you know, oh, we will have you do some 3D stuff on the side. But that never really materialized. I mean, you had invested so much of your life into this goal of becoming an animator. And then in the blink of an eye, that dream was shattered. Yeah. How did you how did you reinvent yourself? It took a long time. I had this sense that something had happened to my creativity, like the trauma of the accident had somehow become entangled with my creativity to the point that I couldn't do anything, like create anything, draw anything without it becoming like an almost panic inducing kind of thing. And so I got the sense that I needed to heal that first. There was no point in trying to aspire to any kind of role that required my creativity if I couldn't create. And so I did a lot of reading. I read Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. That was quite influential to me. Uh, I read lots of Martha Beck books and some of these other self-help type things. And then I got hit on the idea that it was almost like my creativity was this scared little animal. And I needed to be able to coax it back and make it less scared. And so I would do these very, very simple exercises. Like I wanted to learn how to use a digital tablet. But when I tried to, I am going to do this illustration and I'm going to use it in my demo reel or whatever, my creativity would freak out and would not cooperate. So I would do things like, I am going to trace this photo. It's nothing more than just tracing this photo. And I'm going to practice that. And that is going to become, and I would do that. I would do these very, very simple exercises that were purely designed to try to take the anxiety out of what I was doing. What do you think the anxiety was about? I think it was about this idea of trying to push my creativity into a professional domain. And that was tied to what I was doing before when I was creating a demo reel. It was about putting a lot of pressure on it, pressure to perform, pressure to be really, really good and achieve at the highest level. Mm-hmm. There's an Elizabeth Gilbert quote that goes something like, your creativity doesn't care about being professional or making money or doing all these things. It just wants to create. And every time you scream at it to do these things, it just kind of looks back at you like this cat going, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I, I do think there's truth to that. I was screaming at my creativity because I had put so much of myself into this dream 
of working at Disney or working at Pixar, achieving at this highest level. I was asking that of it. And after the accident, my creativity is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And now here you are really entering, I guess, the next phase of your career. You shared with me that you're working towards being a therapeutic arts practitioner, which takes into account that creative spark that you have, but also that healing that seems to be instrumental in your own life. Uh, What drew you to therapeutic arts practice as a possible career choice? Well, I do think it had a lot to do with my own journey back in terms of being somebody that had my creativity entangled in trauma to the point that I couldn't reach for that creativity without causing me pain to moving into the space where I've healed that. Now, I'm not an animator anymore, but I'm a painter which was a part of that journey back as well. I think it's really interesting. In my therapeutic art studies, I've learned that different parts of the brain key into different materials. And so I think in hindsight, the trauma that I've experienced working in certain ways in art don't work for me anymore. And so I moved into a different medium that is more comfortable for me. And I liked that idea. I liked the idea as a therapeutic arts practitioner that I might be able to help people do the same to find healing through art and through their own way of doing it, their own creativity. So much of that journey is your journey. You finding your own metaphors through art and as a practitioner, I'm just your guide and someone who nudges you along the way. But really, it's all on you. What do you say to people that say, I'm not creative. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. <laughs> do you have a message for, for those folks? I think everybody is creative. I think that what's really interesting about the therapeutic arts practice is the idea that It's not about the end result, which I think is what people focus on when they say, I don't have a creative bone in their body. What they mean is that I don't know how to create something that is recognizable or is realistic looking or whatever. But what I know is that the act of creating, no matter what it looks like at the end, is far more important than the final product. Who would you say is your audience for your art? Well, I hope people that are like me and that want to see a different perspective on the world. I mean, certainly my art, my paintings are often of ordinary moments that are in themselves extraordinary. They're a a moment, pictures around the neighborhood. Or one of my favorite paintings is this picture I have or painting I have that shows my wheelchair in the foreground as we're sitting at a music festival with this light coming across the crowd. And 
it's an unusual perspective because there is a wheelchair in the foreground. But at the same time, it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful sunset. It's people enjoying music. I think that is, to me, what my art is and what I hope my audience gets from it is this moment of ordinary extraordinary. I like that. What do you want your legacy to be? Mm-hmm. Let's think about that for a second. Or a different way of asking it is how do you want to be remembered? I don't think of that very often. When I think of my paintings or even when I think of anything I do, I kind of imagine myself living out when I'm gone. I would like people to remember that I was colorful, that I created beautiful things, that I had some interesting bits of wisdom that I passed on through the people that I worked with and that people around me became more creative and more alive creatively than they would have been otherwise. What skill do you feel you would like to develop in the coming year? Well, I definitely want to continue developing myself as a therapeutic arts practitioner. I feel like this is very, very different from anything else that I have ever done. I think it requires a lot more vulnerability and a lot more being open in a way that I haven't been before. Shall we end it there? Yeah. If you'd like to check out Athena's art, go to athenacooper.ca. Softly Spoken is a Tilted Windmills production. It was hosted and produced by Stefan Devilliers. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a rating or review. Thanks again, and see you next time.